Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this, is, uh, this is, what is it? Episode 22, 23, something like that. Season two, we are in our new studio space at the uh, EICC Center. This is the podcast for reformational culture brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And founder and president Joe Boot is here with me today. Good Welcome. To be, good to be here, right? <laughs> I'm here most days, but... Yeah. Uh, well, you're here with me Nice today. to be in the studio <laughs> yeah. with yeah. you today. Yeah. Party on. Yeah, party on. Yeah. You got your, uh, your EICC mug. Yeah, we're doing some, uh, some, good, some good product placements today. Yeah, nicely yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the choice of a new generation. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And... Yeah, you really sold need... out, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've both got we've both got some therapeutic tea because we're getting over a bug. Yeah, that's probably why we're here. They're just quarantining us. Yeah, it's a good spot to be in. Stay away from everybody else. Yeah, yeah, could do a whole lot worse. But, um, beautiful view today. Then beautiful mm, weather. Look at that. Yeah, it's lovely. Right around, right around zero. But, um, yeah, so Joe, uh, we're here today uh, with, uh, with, with some sorrow, with some sense of, um, of sadness and of grief over uh, the state of the church in the West generally, and in particular, uh, some of the catastrophes that have, that have recently come to light um, mm-hmm. in the SBC, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it, uh, it seems this has been a, cuff, uh, a tough couple of, uh, couple of weeks for, for the church in the West. Um, and uh, I wanted to, uh, to get your take on this for a couple of, a couple of reasons, but uh, in particular, you recently wrote an article uh, on uh, corrupt priests and cultural prophets. Oh, we're also in the middle of a, uh, of a construction zone. I'm not sure if, uh, if anybody out it, there is hearing here that. But. Yeah. But that's just uh, something that, some part of the reality that we're living with uh, lately. Either that, or we have a dental surgery uh, operating. Oh, here, was that so today? We'll, yeah. We'll <laughs> um, I just want to read a line from uh, from this article that you wrote recently, mm-hmm. and get uh, get some of your comments here. Uh, you say that a church or a people which rejects the living God and His law word inevitably inevitably produces a culture that rejects fathers, fatherhood, and godly authority, for God himself is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In such a culture, family is threatened and collapses, just as Eli's family collapsed and was judged emphatically. The church is meant to model the fatherhood of God to the world, but we live in an age of a deeply corrupted church and a priesthood in the West. So, Joe, this is a a pretty strong, it's a pretty damning kind of point about... um, the church's impact on culture, and I was just hoping to start us off. Can you can you say more about the specific role um, for good and for ill that the church fulfills in shaping culture? Mm-hmm. Well, what I had in mind here was, of course, um, a generalization about where we find ourselves in the West at the present time, with many of the um, mainline denominations. Um, I think in the article I had a particular reference to the established church in England, 
and uh, what we've seen there, and also, of course, to some of the recent scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, um, and, of course, Scripture recognizes that throughout, actually, Older and Newer Testament, that there is moral failure within the priesthood, within the uh, covenant community. Yes, there is going to be uh, moral failure of a variety of sorts. Um, But, of course, there are times when things are a lot better, and then there are times when things are worse. And... um, in the midst of a, uh, a context where so often the culture is shaping the church rather than the church shaping the culture, one can expect that many of the things that we see prevalent or dominating within the culture will come to actually seriously impact the church. Where the church is weak, where it's unreformed, um, where it is um, uh, running from its uh, responsibility and obligation, you will often find more of the world in the church than you will of the influence of the church in the world. Um, that was uh, primarily what was in my mind there because the, new, the Newer Testament, of course, tells us that the church is pillar and support of the truth. Right. Paul the Apostle says that in Ephesians. And uh, Christ tells us that the people of God are to be a light to the world. We're salt and light. So you've got the image of... Uh, lighting up a dark place there on the one hand. You've got the idea of salt as preservative uh, there as well. You have in Paul the image of the church as pillar and support uh, of truth. And so where you see um, truth, preservation of the truth, preservation of moral order at at tremendous lows in what, especially in a context in which, uh, which historically was deeply and profoundly shaped by the gospel, then you know that there, you're in a time and in a season where the church is, is at a low ebb and that these problems are rife and that much of the culture has found its way into the life of the church. And, of course, the Baalism in our culture today, um, you know, we've just had, you know, a year or more of the, of the Me Too movement yeah. highlighting, you know, massive sexual scandals, sexual assault sexual abuse in Hollywood, uh, the kind of place where we would expect to find it and kind of have known it's always been there, but it's yeah. sort of been uncovered. Um, you know, that's uh, par of the course, as one would expect in a culture that has so lost its way with our understanding and our sense of human identity and, and the norms for human sexuality and family. And then in, a, in an institution that encourages and promotes that kind of radical libertinism like Hollywood, you expect that, where it becomes much more painful uh, and uh, disturbing um, is in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting because you'll see uh, sort of in response to some of these, uh, some of this follow, some of the fallout of these uh, scandals in the church, a lot of people uh, are saying like, you know, just one more, one more evidence why we should get rid of the church, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm interested that you brought up something like Me Too because nobody said that about Hollywood. No, nobody says, we're, let's get rid of entertainment industry. 
Um, but uh, so back to back to the church, like we want to be, we're concerned with policing our own here. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, what what is the appropriate response um, when someone in a position of spiritual leadership uh, is is found to uh, by their own by their own sin have hurt people so dramatically who are under their care? First of all, in terms of the big picture, if we sort of divide that question up into a few pieces. In terms of the big, the big picture, we have to be careful, and this is something that the Institute has tried to say and point out repeatedly. We have to make an important distinction between Christ, uh, the kingdom of God, and the church as an institute. The, the Lord Jesus himself the kingdom of God and the church institute do not coincide exactly. You know, the kingdom of God might be better manifest in some eras in somebody's family than it is in their local apostate liberal church just because somewhere is names that has the name of a church and is organized institutionally as a church does not make it a place where the kingdom of God is necessarily manifest, nor a place that the Holy Spirit is necessarily present who's long since been grieved and long since departed. Ichabod is certainly written over large swathes of the modern church. Um, so we have to make, for the sake of both the Christian believer and the world, we have to make an important distinction between the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his kingdom rule and reign, and the church institute. This is another reason why that distinction is critical. Um, just because somebody wears the gowns, uh, the gown of the, uh, of, of the clergy yeah. does not make them a man of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Spurgeon used to refer to a corrupt priesthood as the geese in their hoods. Uh, you know, just because somebody has a clerical gown on doesn't make them a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to make an important distinction there. Of course, the church organic, the pe- as the people of God... Uh, as the Lord's um, uh, chosen, as his elect, who are justified and are being sanctified. Um, Christ is not ashamed to identify himself with those people, right? who are, of course, sinners. But people masquerading as servants of God, people living in unrepentant lifestyles of immorality, people um, using their position to abuse others as predators, th- these people cannot be identified with Christ and with the kingdom of God, and neither can their behavior. So I think that is, there's an important starting point. There. And that's not to skirt the issue of accountability for these churches or anything like that, but it's important that in, in view of the accusation, oh, well, isn't, the, isn't this just another reason, you know, the secularists, as you say, hypocritically calling out, as they wouldn't for a politician. Yeah, or, yeah. let's do away know. with the state. <laughs> let's do away there with are the too state. many corrupt exactly. politicians. All these judges and politicians <laughs> and everything else. Now, they, 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 you don't hear those calls. Um, but, you know, this, 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 these sorts of instances become, you know, easy opportunities for the uh, God-haters to, yeah. to call for the, you know, disbanding of the church and whatever else. That's never going to happen. The Church of Jesus Christ cannot be disbanded. But we, but we make, need to make that important distinction. Um, and that's a good, remi- good reminder from a different angle to modern evangelicals who tend to conflate and confuse the kingdom of God with anything that the church is doing or does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing. 
I think the second thing is that we have to uh, recognize and identify these sorts of instances, whether they be, uh, you know, financial fraud and scandals, um, uh, greed and uh, and sort of domination. We sort of heard this tragic story coming out of the harvest mm-hmm. movement of late as well, um, or whether it be these sexual abuse uh, scandals in the Southern Baptist Convention or the Roman Catholic Church, some of which, quite frankly, are, are, are absolutely, they're agony to read, some yeah. of them. Yeah. The, the degree of, when you, when you hear about three-year-olds, children as young as three, being uh, abused by authority figures in the church, oh, um, it makes your blood boil. Yeah. And it should. That, that's the reaction that should be there. Um, and so I think the, the second issue here is that we need to recognize and identify uh, criminality when we see it and stop hiding uh, behind. I think there's a danger, and, and this is, seems to have happened repeatedly in recent years, even within evangelicalism, that there is a kind of false piety associated with overlooking or forgiving, in adverted commas, uh, this kind of behavior. And I think, Ryan, quite frankly, this speaks to something else that the Institute has spoken about for many years, which is the radical antinomianism in the church. Yeah. That if you have this pious gush um, about um, uh, forgiveness and uh, reconciliation and harmony and um, uh, unity and it, almost anything being justified in these kinds of terms, uh, things being papered over mm-hmm. that should be brought to light. The things which are hidden should be brought. The things that are done in darkness, Scripture is clear, they will be brought to light. Yeah. Uh, instead of bringing those things to light, when these things are covered up, an antinomian spirit is at work. Yeah. Uh, the idea that there can be forgiveness <coughs> and cleansing and transformation where there has been no accountability, no confession, no repentance... And because the church institute does not bear the sword, that's not part of its role or mandate, that's the obligation of the state, if there is a confession in the life of the church of criminal activity among individuals abusing others, those things have to be brought to the attention of the authorities. There is no place for church authority there to overstep its sphere of authority any more than the family has the right to cover up criminal abuse and activity. Um, The church... Or to take criminal um, punishment punishment into into its its own own hands. hands. Exactly. The church does not have the authority to to bring about criminal sanctions in areas of criminal behavior. And it doesn't have the the right to shield uh, uh, criminals in this area. The only way for healing and restoration, renewal and true repentance to be made manifest is when these things are brought to, into the light, they are confessed, they are dealt with, and where people face the full social just penalty for criminal actions. And as has been pointed out, when that doesn't happen, when the church becomes a place of pious gush, sentimentality and false forgiveness, it becomes a place actually where predators can hide. And then predators can be passed around 
from one congregation to another, whether it's in the Roman Church or in the Southern Baptist Convention or any other church movement. They can move from one place to the next where antinomianism and radical forms of pietism and quietism and retreatism and a failure to recognize God-ordained sphere sovereignty in, uh, in, in social, uh, political, and, uh, and familial and church life where these things are not recognized and where God's law does not take its proper place, uh, we can expect that these things uh, will, be, will be commonplace. Um, God's law is emphatic on all of these areas of sexual abuse, sexual misconduct. It's absolutely crystal clear about how God regards them. And it's only an antinomian church that covers them up. I think I was mentioning to you earlier in conversation that um, in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul, you know, one of the questions that's come up with some of these discussions is, well, you know, uh, how should the church have responded when these things have been brought to their attention? And Yeah, like what, uh, like what recourse do, do, does the church have? If, uh, if not the sword. Exactly. You know, if, 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 if we can't uh, bring the, the, the uh, sword of the magistrate to bear in these situations, which we can't, the church does have its own kind of authority which must address these issues. And, of course, the first is, is, is church discipline, which culminates in excommunication. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, charges the church to create its own courts of arbitration to hear and address issues where accusations and disputes arise in the life of the church, to find out, to investigate properly and thoroughly, in terms of God's word, that situation. And then that uh, tribunal um, uh, would uh, then be responsible uh, in a church situation where there's accountability to bring about um, uh, and recommend the necessary church discipline and also refer criminal activity to the appropriate authorities, uh, to to the civil magistrate, to to address and deal with. Now, Paul is explicit that these kinds of courts to address these sorts of disputes that come up where in a church situation, for example, a Christian family or person accuses a a leader or a pastor of something, it might be financial mismanagement, it might be um, uh, inappropriate speech, inappropriate conduct. God forbid, this form of sexual misconduct. And, and in all these situations, there should be, Paul says, men, wise people, who are ready to judge in terms of the law of God. Um, Paul says in, in verse 2, Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you settle those who have no standing in the church to judge? I say, this to your sh- I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? And uh, he goes on to talk about uh, not only how in, in matters of um, financial dispute or whatever, yeah. it's actually a, a, a disgrace for non-believers just to be hauling each other before small claims courts to squabble with one another, Um, uh, he actually says, don't you know that the unrighteous, verse 9, will not inherit the kingdom? It's very interesting that he says this after his discussion about 
Christians judging in these matters in the life of the church. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral person, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So I'm not saying that Paul is saying there that the church courts replace the, the civil magistrate. Paul was well aware of what the civil magistrate's responsibility was. But here is a case where, where we're commanded that church courts should exist to investigate and determine what nature these sorts of um, uh, disputes and accusations and situations are. And there should be church discipline, which is obviously identifying the issue and ultimately excommunicating the unrepentant offenders and criminal offenders should be referred to the civil magistrate and a full accounting of the accusations be made known to the civil authority. And any sort of covering up of these things is antinomian to the core and it's a violation not just of the Older Testament law, it's a violation of what Paul is saying to the church. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, one, one other point that uh, that you made in this earlier article that I wanted to, uh, to get your... Uh, get some more some more of your thoughts on uh you made uh, you made a reference to um samuel and to yeah. uh to eli's uh, reprobate sons um but then with reference to samuel you say you say that god is always working with a remnant of people who are ready to trust and obey his word mm-hmm. um i mean that that word remnant um i always think of uh, the story of elijah and the prophets of baal um in where, where or right after he's uh, he's confronted Jezebel and he's crying out that he's the to God like I'm the only one left, and then God says that he's preserved a remnant for himself, um, seven thousand others who have not bowed the knee to Baal and who will not, mm-hmm. who God is God is holding fast to them. Um, what are uh, what are the uh, some of the new testament or contemporary parallels to those uh to that faithful remnant where do we where do, where are we where can we look and and see god with his uh, with his restraining preservative hand on his people mm-hmm. well it is interesting isn't it as you look throughout scripture how you see god uh, repeatedly pruning away mm-hmm. at his people mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think it's the prophet Isaiah who refers to God working with a stump. Yes. You know, um, sometimes it's a remnant, sometimes it's a stump. Um, but, uh, there is a, there's a, there's a pattern there of God always looking for, um, righteous prophets, priests, and kings, uh, who will be faithful to him and to his word and be ready, ready to stand for, for truth and justice in a time where it's in short supply. Hophni and Phineas's case, you know, the sons of Eli there is very interesting in terms of the overall question because they were, they were priests. And, and, Eli, and Eli himself was not um, an altogether um, useless yes. man. Yeah. I mean, clearly his senses were a bit dulled. He didn't really recognize that Hannah was in earnest prayer and, you know, he thought she was drunk in the tabernacle. And, uh, and then he's very slow to realize that God is speaking to Samuel. He's not the sharpest tool in the box, and certainly there's implied, more than implied, criticism of his um, negligence as a father. Yeah. 
with Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas were priests, and it's very interesting, Ryan, that they were what the one of their most serious crimes <coughs> was they well they were stealing from God and the people. They were taking the choice meats and so forth. So they were thieves. They were they were mishandling God's resources. Yes. They, they were they were defrauding the people. But they were also committing sexual immorality in the tabernacle. They were seducing. They were essentially predators. They were, yeah. they were uh, men who were using their position to uh, gain, take sexual advantage mm-hmm. of young women coming to the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. So you have a very interesting parallel all the way back there in First Samuel yeah. to some of the things we're seeing today. Um, so God, of course, has, has taken that faith of Hannah and now is using this young man, Samuel, to address this situation. And as you said earlier, the nation was suffering. Um, and I think it's absolutely true that if the church fails to properly represent the fatherhood of God, wherever the church, where it's meant to represent the love and covenantal care of God the Father <clears throat> through the Son, uh, you have a situation where um, authority figures are distrusted, uh, where uh, fathers are neglected, essentially, and, and despised, where, um, where families start to collapse. When we lose sight of who God really is, as f- Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the holy family, the revelation of God in familial terms, when th- that, the living God is rejected, it's no surprise that in the culture, uh, we begin to see fatherhood, families, and so forth being despised and steadily collapsing. And it's at that point where <clears throat> God is always looking for a faithful people, a faithful remnant who will model the covenant life of the kingdom um, grounded in God's self-revelation as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the redemptive work that he is about in history. So there is a connection between collapse of family, collapse of fatherhood, collapse of authority, and the neglect of faithful representation of who God is. Um, when we look at the broader picture um, of the church today, let's also be clear that, let's take the Southern Baptist Convention as an example, um, there's probably 95,000 or more ministers, pastors within that movement. And uh, I think it's just over 300 or so, are, are uh, or around 300 yeah, or so. Yeah, I think... Uh... I can't remember if it's 300. 300 or closer to 400. Closer to 400 were accused and a certain number have been convicted and so forth. But you're looking at, what, I, half half of a percent, yeah. uh, which is half of a percent too many. Sure, of course. But let's also bear in mind that uh, we are looking at a, uh, a predatorial, very small minority. Now, there may be, of course, that may be the tip of an iceberg has been discovered in the Roman church sometimes uh what gets exposed is a is a thin end of a wedge um we certainly pray that that's not the case um but sometimes when these scandals break and there are difficult times for the life of the church we can get the elijah mentality that i'm it's just me i'm on my own i you know uh it's just us we're all that's left you know um everybody else has gone the way of baal but but god is always preserving for himself um a people who recognize the situation 
are hearing the voice of God and want to be faithful to the Lord. And I think we are beginning to see signs of that in the small signs in, in the younger generation. Uh, even here, as I think as, a, as an institute, we see positive signs of that among some of the younger pastors uh, of, um, of a remnant that is recognizing that the church is bleeding um, for a couple of generations now. Uh, vast numbers of people vast numbers of young people, that there's more of the world in the church and there is of the church touching and shaping the world, um, and that we need a time of uh, revival. I prefer, actually, reformation and renewal um, in the life of the church just because of some of the associations of the word revival with just a kind of a, a superficial revivalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know what I mean? A, a, a deep work of, of God in uh, restoring foundations in his church and um, working with a remnant. I think we see warnings in the Newer Testament to the particular point of your question uh, to the churches in the book of Revelation, to the letters to the the seven churches, um, and the way in which those churches are warned about um, what I guess we would call today nominality, superficiality, presumption, uh, syncretism, uh, interestingly enough, um, the places of the those churches have been largely taken over by Islam today. Um, so, you know, there there are there are warnings there, um, and there is a, always a call uh, that goes out. It's there in the Book of Hebrews. It's there in, of course, in the writings of um, the Apostle Paul that we. Uh, and of course, Peter, that we um, test whether we're in the faith. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that uh, Jesus himself warns us that the wheat and the tares grow up together and um, uh, judge nothing before the time. Uh, There is a... uh, uh, God has his way of exposing, bringing to light, you know, hypocrisy, faithlessness, um, faithlessness and... um, deception and um, uh, the sort of synagogue of Satan masquerading as the church. And what's left there when you've got a, uh, you know, a kind of synagogue of Satan that has abandoned the word of God is, is the remnant. And that remnant is not perfect. Uh, it's, not a, it's not as though we've, we've got some blind uh, sort of heresy-hunting zeal to drive out Uh, every form of possible impurity uh, from the church. Paul, writing to uh, a church with all kinds of problems, like the church in Corinth, um, does not deny that Corinth is a church, uh, despite uh, the sexual immorality that was there and um, uh, the things that Paul had to seriously reprimand them for. Um, This is the church that he's telling to set up courts of arbitration. The very same, the very same. So, uh, you know, there's no, there's no sort of um, naive notion in Scripture of a perfect church in a fallen world prior to the consummation of all things and the, the coming of Christ and, the, and the, the, the final removal of all of our sin and failure and uh, error and so on. Um, we mustn't become fanatical in the sense of thinking that we can purify God's church with some, some sort of uh, uh, 
you know, naive zeal right. that, that isn't based in knowledge. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we're commanded, be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Um, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we should be striving in the life of the church to, to be faithful. And it's that, it's where you find a church not, that's not perfect, but nonetheless striving to be faithful and seeking to manifest the marks of the true church, that the faithful preaching of the word of God, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and related to that, the faithful exercise of church discipline. There we see God's stump, uh, God's garden, uh, the vine, those are the ones who are remaining in the vine, and therefore we're being pruned uh, by God. And so uh, painful as some of these exposés are, there is a, we, we need to be thankful uh, that God brings these things to light so that they can be addressed and dealt with. And we certainly should not uh, rejoice um, in the downfall of um, uh, maybe prominent pastors who have fallen into financial scandal or uh, have, have seemed to have lost their way as ministers. Um, and sort of rejoice in their in their in their fall. You know, um, if any man thinks he stand, he should take heed, lest he fall. And so, I think taking these things as a, a sober a sober warning, and a keen desire that we not be antinomian, that we not be pietistic, we not be so buried in sentimental gush that we don't have the courage and the faith to address lawlessness in the life of the church. And God will work with that remnant when he sees that kind of passion for the truth and for his word he'll work with that remnant not just just to reform the church but to see tremendous impact in the culture as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no i so i really i really appreciate how you uh you started off this whole this whole conversation here about examining yourself um <clears throat> it's a bottom-up kind of transformation mm-hmm. that uh a, a grassroots i guess radical in the sense of be like starting at the roots mm-hmm. and uh, and flowing up from there. It's not yeah. something that uh, that anyone can can legislate you into. No, no, exactly. And it uh, it's a you know as fallible, fallen human beings, even as redeemed people, we have feet of clay, and that's why we need structures of accountability around us. That's why we need uh, faithful brothers and sisters around us. That's why we need to confess our sins one to another. Um, as soon as uh, we start um, uh, running for the shadows uh, and covering things up, and so that's when, you know, if in our own lives uh, our tendency is to cover up rather than confess, um, and let's face it, that's what sin wants to do. It wants to cover its tracks. Yeah. Um, when we find that tendency uh, in ourselves, we need to resist it um, because, you know, things... Things hidden, um, uh, sinful ideas fondled and nurtured, uh, desire can then give birth to sin, and sin then gives birth to ultimately a kind of spiritual death. Um, And people can uh, find themselves all of a sudden in the grip of something they never thought that they were susceptible to because they've not been honest with themselves, they've not been honest with others, they've not been honest with God. And then all of a sudden... Um, you're uh, vulnerable and and, and exposed. And um, 
Uh, we see great saints in Scripture, faithful men of God. Uh, perhaps the most uh, notorious example is, is King David himself, sure. the one whom Samuel anointed, yeah. uh, who was the man after God's own heart, who, who uh, had a passion and a burden to rebuild the temple. And, and God said, well, that's for your son Solomon to do, but you get the materials ready. Um, who, uh, you know, in, in many respects was, a, was a, a type of Christ in his righteous kingship. And yet, and yet, we all know there he is that day on the roof and probably many scholars think, you know, where he shouldn't have been. Maybe he should have been at war with right. uh, yeah. his army and he wasn't and he was on his roof and he saw a woman uh, that he desired and was unable to resist that temptation and he took her for himself even though she was married and he arranged for the execution of a, arranged for the death of her husband mm-hmm. and it takes the prophet Nathan to come and, and challenge him a faithful prophet to say you're accountable you're accountable to God just because you're the king you're not uh, six foot above reproach mm-hmm. this is the king yeah. and here's a lowly prophet coming to challenge the king and this is why in um, Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, God gives very, very ins- explicit instructions to kings yeah. uh, who were going to rule in the life of his people uh, that uh, anybody who um, is called to that office, finds himself in that office, uh, is to read the law of God all the days of their lives mm-hmm. and to obey it. And to not raise themselves up above their brothers. To recognize that they are subject to the law of God, to the word of God. They're accountable to God. And then God appoints prophets, the, uh, if you will, the, uh, the ecclesiastical offices there, to hold the king to account in terms of that law word. And that's what happens in the life of David. So, you know, none of us is above and beyond temptation and falling in different areas of life. And uh, that's why it's important for all of us as believers, and especially Christian leaders, that we put appropriate structures of accountability around us so that we uh, are vulnerable with one another and um, uh, guard one another's soul, guard guard one another against uh, uh, temptation. Yeah, amen. It's always been interesting to me that that Samuel is so resistant to the idea of a king. I think it's uh, God has has sanctioned this. Uh, he acknowledges, like you said in Deuteronomy 17, that he acknowledges that they're going to want to be like the nations around them mm-hmm. and set themselves up for a king. And Samuel is so hesitant to do that. Mm-hmm. And then it's uh, it's something that I've never never quite uh, quite grasped. Like mm-hmm. what is, what is what is his hang up about kingship? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of things going on, isn't there? First of all, um, the reason I think uh, God says to Samuel, look, you know, listen to the people, mm-hmm. is that the, the forerunners of the king of all kings, and the lord of all lords, need to take their place in order to be the types, in order to yes. be the, um, the um, shadow, if you will, of the greater king. Uh, to come. And uh, it's interesting that some of the requirements, like the ones I cited in, in Deuteronomy 17 for kingship, deeply influenced the development of, of, of kingship in the Western world, of monarchy in the Western, in the Western world. 
Um, but so I think on the one hand, uh, you have God's redemptive purposes uh, being steadily manifest uh, through a kingship. Um, but on the other hand, because only God is truly sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, the people's demand for a king like the pagans, like the nations, that's their demand, it's like the nations around yes. us. Samuel recognized that that demand would bring with it a curtailing of their freedoms. And you've got a description there um, in 1 Samuel 8 of the, the sort of right of eminent domain, the ability of the king to essentially seize property, to, see, to uh, high taxation. Requisition your to family requisition to go work family, in his fields. Exactly. Um, you know, maybe take daughters for his harem, to send your children to war, to uh, make you work for him, etc., etc., etc. And Samuel's concern was that, you, you know, why would you, under the, under the benevolent kingship of God and the authority simply of the judges, why would you put, concentrate so much power in the hands of a human king? And that's his concern. And uh, it's a right concern. And, and actually, God does say to him, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. Yeah. You know, so Samuel's, I think, feeling it. You know, well, I'm being rejected. I'm, I'm a judge yeah. in Israel. And by this call for kingship, you're rejecting my judgeship. And you're, 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 you're rejecting the, the model of the judges in the life of uh, Israel. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you prefer this notion of, of tyrannical kingship. And so uh, God helps Samuel understand, look, the, reject, the people's rejection of him is actually a rejection of God, of God's immediate rule and reign in their lives. Um, because kingship brings with it a certain amount of um, ability to pass the buck, to pass responsibility, to shift the burden of leadership, the burden of the of decision making, the bird, all these burdens you can let, let's become, let's give it to a king. Let's just have a king we can admire and praise and crown and and adore and celebrate and so on and so forth. Like the pagans have their great king, their great shepherd, yeah. and he will shepherd us and look after us and care for us and so forth. Do the hard business of making these decisions. Exactly, do all that, and you know we see the same pattern in modern politics today. It's sure. the same issue, you know. Uh, that um, sometimes people will vote for political slavery rather than responsibility and freedom. Yeah. And so we see that even in the life of Israel. And, uh, but by, 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 in Israel's history, seeing both righteous kingship and unrighteous kingship of, of um, failure, um, we see then this great contrast uh, that Jesus Christ, who is... King of kings, Lord of lords, who sit on the throne of David forever and forever and ever to execute justice and righteousness. Um, we, get a, we, get a, we get a glimpse in somebody like David, as fallible and flawed as he was, of what true God-honoring kingship that honors the law of God and the word of God and his servant kingship, uh, what, it, uh, what it is meant to truly look like, what sovereignty and authority under God uh, really looks like so you've got those those kind of two things at work uh, there in what seems you know a little bit baffling um, 
But in the end, uh, as uh, Revelation 1.5 says, that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, and uh, ultimately all sovereignty, power, and authority lies with him, and everything else is delegated. And thus uh, kings and governments are accountable, and church leaders are accountable to the word of God, to the law word of God. And it's a good reminder. That's, uh, I, liked, <clears throat> I liked that... Uh, that that push of putting the finger on antinomianism and calling it out and seeing some of the some some of the disastrous consequences of that mm-hmm. uh, when we uh, when we abandon the law word of God. Yeah, false forgiveness and uh, uh, is a major problem, you know, in the life of the church. As though that there can be forgiveness and let's just put put that under the rug and let's just for the sake of the church and its reputation. Now these are all this is self. Uh, the, the, the word of God, the law of God, true forgiveness is a legal, is a legal fact. The forgiveness is a legal fact. And it can only truly come about when there has been full confession, full repentance, and restitution. Yeah. And that restitution, in, in, for example, the cases that you've spoken about today, uh, yes, will involve restitution in the life of the church, but it may also involve civil restitution yeah. by somebody serving their time in prison. Uh, for what they've done. So uh, that's the, the meaning of true forgiveness. Confession, repentance, restitution. Not this false, pious gush that uh, leaves the church exposed to these sorts of situations and accusations of hypocrisy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, what else, what else could account for, you know, educated, thoughtful men several of them, like in committee and by commission, mm-hmm. like uh, going, voting to or electing to yeah. go along, like preserve the status quo and yeah. not pursue justice. Yeah. Like, Antinomian to the core. Yeah. That's the first thing that came to me when I read this. It's, it's lawlessness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and we've allowed it to prosper and grow in evangelicalism because of the uh, antinomian, anti-law mentality that, uh, that pervades so much of the of, of the modern um, evangelical movement mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't take God's law seriously, yeah. uh, and um, thinks that somehow um, grace somehow sets aside law, and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. They reinforce one another, and they are meaningless without each other. And uh, it's another reason we don't take church discipline seriously. And, uh, you know, how can you have a, possibly have a situation where men who have been um, convicted of these sorts of uh, offenses could nonetheless still be preaching or still be in church leadership and, and being passed around in this way? These things are incredible. Um, but they are, they're, a, they're a manifestation of the notion that... Um, it's grace, not law. We're not under law or under grace. These kinds of um, uh, throwaway uh, remarks that are supposedly that supposedly set aside the law of God, yeah. uh, right? And the weight of, of of church discipline. But Paul is emphatic there in First Corinthians six. You know, as church leaders, we need to go and read it. Uh, you know, we judge in terms of the law word of God. That that's the calling. It's part of the calling of God's people amongst their own yeah and if uh, if we won't do that like we have we have no basis we have no other standard for mm-hmm. for right i mean 
the world will give us one, they'll volunteer one pretty happily, but yeah. we have no legitimate transcendent standard aside from that law. Precisely. Yeah, once we've jettisoned that, you are just left with the, the feelings of local committees and boards or regional dioceses or whatever, and what are they, whatever they feel is best. And in terms of self-preservation or the preservation of reputation and the denomination. And uh, those things can never be allowed to trump God's law. In fact, even in Scripture, family, blood is not allowed to trump God's law. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, parents are required to testify against um, uh, d- delinquent, rebellious, abusive youth, yeah. even if they're their own children. Yeah. And th- th- God's law must take precedence. And uh, where any kind of... Uh, uh, other loyalty takes precedence over the law of God. We have a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Joe, thanks a lot uh, for your comments, for your time here. My privilege is great to be back. Yeah, good to see you. We'll do this again. Indeed, in this new setting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.